what are we doing here? The other day I was talking to a Zen teacher, a friend of mine, who told me about a very old friend of theirs who had um, had a stroke and lost their, their story, their sense of self, their narrative. This friend lives every moment in the present with stories forgotten. This person is very, very highly educated and skilled in developing artificial intelligence, which I find quite mind boggling that she can invent bots, you know, uh, chatbots and things, um, but was concerned about living in a world with none of their personal stories. They know who their children are, can drive a car and cook and so on. And it's not like dementia, this person functions perfectly well in the world and has memories, just no ongoing storyline about me. So what is this like? Well, this person was concerned about that this was a way of being in the world that no one else really understood. But this friend of mine, the Zen teacher said, does fallen away body and mind mean anything to you? This teacher was of course quoting from Dogen when he was speaking of his realization experience. Yes, it did. After this, the Zen teacher started sharing some written materials about other similar but spontaneous experiences people had had of the dropping away of a sense of self, such as Douglas Harding's On Having No Head and Flora Courtois's account of her spontaneous realization experience, before going on to talk about the Zen practice that predisposes us to such experiences. As a result, this friend without a story started sitting regularly and subsequently responded very, very easily to the opening koans. This person lives with no sense of self, of a self, no sense of a narrative self. Um, you know, uh, they have no stories. So, what's left? Well, you tell me. This person is to all intents and purposes a fully functioning and contented human being. What this person doesn't have is a constant story about who they are. And yet this person lives each moment with complete awareness without a fixed narrative about who they are as an ongoing self to distract them, nor any need to manipulate experience to fit in with that sense of self. After discovering Zen and learning that this world of no self they inhabit is well known and is extensively described in Zen literature, indeed is actively sought, then they have become at ease with this way of being. Of course, it's different from most of us who know only too well that our sense of self is often only too eager to assert itself and try to get what it wants. But most of the time, on or off the cushion, what is the problem if the sense of our ongoing narrative self, a self that often seems to think it's running the show, is absent? So, I imagine some of you can see where I'm going with this. This is what we are aiming for in Sashin. Not to suffer a brain injury, of course, but to practice in a way 
that allows us to voluntarily let go of our self-narrative. Without this self-narrative, we find peace and freedom. Of course, if we're also to function in the everyday world, the world of form, we also have to have our stories of who we are and what we know and who we're related to and so on, that we try to maintain and keep vaguely coherent. But we don't need them nearly as much as we think we do. We can let go of much of the scaffolding, the internal narrative that we use to maintain a sense of self. To be honest, I think that some of the Zen teachers of old had very little sense of a self to maintain. Ryokan, beloved for his poetry, springs to mind. In my begging bowl, violets and daisies mixed together. Let's make an offering to all the Buddhas of the three worlds. He is famous for his free-spirited, unconventional life and his poetry. But his lists sometimes sound like someone struggling to keep the social conventions together. Here's a list. Offer incense and flowers to the Buddha. Plant trees and shrubs, sweep the garden, carry water, remove rocks. Always eat plain food. Don't sleep late. Don't overeat. Don't take long naps. Don't do things you know you shouldn't be doing. Don't be lazy. Don't do things halfway. Don't try to hide from your worries. Drink sake hot. This apparently lessens the alcohol content, by the way. Keep your head shaved. Cut fingernails and toenails. Rinse the mouth and clean the teeth. Bathe. Speak out loud. I know about that speaking out loud. Um, many of us during restrictions and lockdowns here in New South Wales have been comparing notes and finding that in the relative isolation, all days being alike without regular events to attend, places to be, people to see, we are also on the verge of making lists of how to be normal too. So, as I said in the title of this talk, what are you doing here? Why are you here in Sishin? I very much hope that you are drawn to sink more deeply and find freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of the self we think we are, the fixed self we strive to create, maintain, work on and improve through our stories and preferences. To be honest, freedom was what I was after from the time I first started Zen. Yet, I must also confess that I was deeply deluded about what this freedom entailed. Like many of us whose early years of Zen practice coincided with the 60s and 70s, the era of psychedelics, TM, the Beatles, the Summer of Love, Women's Lib and the Pill, I sometimes confused freedom with self-indulgence. This is understandable since it was not only me who was confused. Some of the Zen and other spiritual leaders from Asia who arrived in America at this time also fell into the trap. Fortunately, 
my teacher in Japan, Yamada Kohn Roshi, and his American Dharma heir, Robert Aitken Roshi, who started the Diamond Sangha, were not like this. While not overly emphasized in their teachings, it was clear they took the lay vows and precepts seriously. So the big question is, how do we find this freedom? Well, I mentioned Flora Courtois before, and she had a spontaneous realization experience, several in fact, before encountering a Zen teacher, Yatsutani Roshi, who confirmed them for what they were and with whom she subsequently practiced Zen. So I think it's important to know that realization can come to anyone spontaneously. However, most of the time, as far as we know, it doesn't unless people put in some effort. Even Shakyamuni Buddha himself didn't get there without doing a lot of sitting. And he tried a lot of other more uncomfortable ascetic practices that didn't work too well before that. But we also need to be open to change. After all, we practice because we want to change. But are you prepared to change? Are you willing to let go of your certainties? The three essentials of Zen are great faith, great doubt, and great effort or determination. Great faith is not asking us to believe in some God we've never seen, but simply to have faith that awakening awakening to our Buddha nature is real and something we already have without realizing it. After all, Buddha means awakened one. And if we didn't think he was awakened and that we can learn from that and awaken ourselves, even while knowing it may take some time, we wouldn't hang around in this uncomfortable position for hours on end. Moreover, I suspect that all of you have experienced moments when it seemed on the verge of being completely clear, but then trying to grab it and define it made it evaporate. Great effort is pretty obvious too. We need to try and we do. We feel uncomfortable, but we keep sitting until the end of the round. We feel like going to a movie but we go to the Zendo on a Thursday evening. We do that, we make the effort. In Seshin, we abandon everything and put all our effort into our Zazen. In the three pillars of Zen, there's a description of a man who had lost his pipe, which had been in his hand a moment ago, and who looks for it with the determination of someone who knows it is there. I don't think I quite understood this determination of the man with the pipe until recently, when I found that lockdown brain seems to have left me much more prone to losing things, especially my keys or glasses. One day I searched everywhere for my glasses. I knew I'd had them just a short while before and was looking for them with the determination of someone who A, cannot read without them, and B, no, she had them in her hand just minutes ago, so they couldn't be far away. I searched everywhere for what seemed ages with the ruthless determination of someone who knows they must be somewhere in the house before realizing that they were on my head. 
Working with Moo or Who Am I or Who Is Hearing That Sound is exactly like that. You are determinedly searching everywhere, but what you are looking for is that close. Which brings us to great doubt. Great doubt is a funny one. Actually, doubt in classical Buddhism is one of the five hindrances. So why in Zen do we think it's essential? Perhaps doubt is a misleading word. In this case, it's really more like uncertainty about everything. The uncertainty that may feel when we turn up to class to learn something we know nothing about with a kind of excited anticipation that it's going to change our understanding in ways we can't yet imagine. It's that not knowing that children have that makes them say, why, a lot, or gaze in wonder at things we find ordinary. I always remember my grandson, you know, coming home one, coming one day and saying, oh, so, I can't remember who it was, but they've got a new car and it's got seats in it. <laughs> that wonder. Children are full of curiosity about the world and regularly astonished. But as we get older, we have learned a lot of ideas and theories about how the world is. Generally, they have crept up on us imperceptibly. We may vaguely remember our excitement and wonder as children, but then we don't exactly know how or when. We grew up and often cease to have that wonder. Instead, all the variety of miracles that surround us daily on this living planet have become ordinary, taken for granted, normal. Then one day we may have found that our assumptions of normality are not met. The world is not the orderly place we had thought. Bad things happen. Confusing things happen. Sometimes it happens earlier, sometimes later. But at some point we are likely to question who we are, what we are doing here. Whether Martin Luther King was right when he said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, or whether it's collapsing in a horrible heap. It is then in relation to our Zen practice, that doubt is vital to our effort. We have some kind of faith that, as we regularly recite, this very place is the lotus land, this very body the Buddha. We have faith, or we try to, that everything is complete and perfect just as it is. The universe is unfolding as it should. So why are things such a mess? What's going on? Why am I still unhappy? Why am I dissatisfied? This is the doubt. This is the open to whatever happens kind of not knowing. We need to push us to make the effort to realize it for ourselves. This is the energizing don't know mind that is open to possibility. Coming back to Ryokan, 
He was an early 19th century Japanese mendicant monk, a beggar monk, who lived from 1758 to 1831. To put that in context, he was born around the same time as William Blake, and Jane Austen was born and died within his lifetime. I find that amazing. Somehow, Emma and Rio Can don't seem to be of the same planet even, but they were at the same time. I'm struck by how his life and poetry embody and illustrate this don't know mind in ways that are perhaps especially appealing to lay practitioners because although he was a monk, he was not institutionalized, but combined elements of the classic Zen wandering hermits of early Chan with that of a more modern lay practitioner. Like Shakyamuni Buddha, Ryokan had been born into a family of some power and was apparently destined for a life of some status, authority and financial ease as his father was a local leader. But instead he chose to become a monk. However, he eschewed monastery life. Here's an extract from an essay he wrote called Priesthood. I see those who have become monks thoughtlessly raising their voices night and day only concerned with filling their stomachs, they spend their lives pursuing externals. For a layman to lack dedication to the way may be excused, but for a monk to be like this is obscene. When you shave your head, you sever all attachment to the three worlds. When you don the monk's robes, you destroy the world of appearances. Casting off all bonds of affection, you enter the realm of the unconditioned, indifferent to right and wrong. Wherever one goes in the world, men and women have their allotted tasks. Without weaving, how can you make clothes? Without tilling the fields, how can one feed oneself? Those who nowadays call themselves Shakyamuni Buddha's disciples have neither faith, have neither practice nor enlightenment. They uselessly consume the offerings of the faithful, heedless of the offenses they commit. Instead, they band together and talk big, going on like this from morn till night. He himself was famous for living simply and begging for his food. Consequently, he often found himself hungry as he lived among poor people. In his poetry, he doesn't hide the fact that it was at times a hard life. Will my stupidity and stubbornness ever end? Poor and alone, that's my life. Twilight on the streets of a ramshackle town, going home again with an empty bowl. At other times, his mood is quite different. A Buddhist monk of the old Indian school, I hid myself on Mount Kugami. I don't recall how many springtimes ago. I've worn out countless pairs of robes, but my staff has never left my side. Following the mountain streams, I wander singing along distant paths or sit and watch the white clouds billowing from jagged peaks. Pity the traveler in the floating world of fame and fortune, his life spent chasing after specks of swirling dust. These are both poems of the wandering begging monk, but listen to this one. Where did my life come from? 
where will it go? Even the present moment can't be pinned down. Everything changes, everything is empty. And in that emptiness, this I exists only for a little while. How can one say anything is or is not? Best just to hold these little thoughts, let things simply take their way and so be natural and at your ease. This is the Ryokan who was well-versed in the Mahayana theory of non-duality, nowadays compared to both contemporary deconstructionist theory and post-Newtonian physics. He was known as great fool, which is how he referred to himself. But it's we who are the fools if we do not see that he was a highly intelligent, well-educated, well-read and accomplished bodhisattva hiding in plain sight. Returning now to our own pathways, realization, awakening can be gradual. There may be no sudden earth shattering experience. It just seeps in somehow over years of diligent practice and we find we can respond appropriately. This is the way of the Soto tradition of shikantaza or silent illumination. Gradually, we come to realize our true nature, our original face before our parents were born. In either case, whether sudden or gradual, this is very different from trying to polish ourselves and become our best selves. David Law refers to this as an important tension today between self-help Buddhism and socially engaged Buddhism. Zen is a Mahayana practice which means we are on the bodhisattva path. And I'd like to quote David Loy on this because he expresses it so well. Because awakening to my non-duality with the world does not automatically eliminate habitual self-centered ways of thinking and acting, following a bodhisattva path becomes important for reorienting my relationship with the world. Instead of asking, what can I get out of this situation? One asks, what can I contribute to this situation to make it better? Thus, the Bodhisattva path is a way of emphasizing the important distinction between two ways of understanding the Buddhist path. Do I follow the path only to end my own suffering or to address the suffering of everyone? Interestingly, and not surprisingly, this everyone includes us. On some other occasion, I mentioned one of Arthur Wells Roshi's favorite forms of meta meditation based on words from the Dharma bums. It goes like this. You think of somebody, uh, maybe Donald Trump, and then you say, Donald Trump, equally empty, equally to be loved, equally a coming Buddha. I remember going to a session led by Joko Beck where she led bowing practice, where for about an hour we would do prostrations, full bows to everyone in turn, everyone we thought of in turn, bowing from those we loved unreservedly to those we were pretty neutral about, and finally, to those we consider obnoxious. 
Here is Ryokan again, writing about the Bodhisattva never despising anyone from the Lotus Sutra. Day and night you practice, bowing and bowing again. You live your life simply practicing bowing. I take refuge in you, never despising anyone. You stand alone without a peer above or under heaven. Some throw stones, some beat him with sticks. He retreats, then stops and calls to them aloud. Since this fellow has left the world, no one has heard from him but the wind and moonlight that fills the night. For whom do they reveal their purity? There was no one like you in the past. There'll be no one like you in the future. Never disparaging, never despising anyone. Your pureness makes me forever adore you. Well, I confess to adoring Ryokan, his ability to let go of habits of mind and simply play so-called crazy Zen monks often play, but sometimes we are slow to realize that play can provide the freedom to communicate what cannot be put into words. So please, let yourself enjoy this precious time of doing nothing except being completely alive. Let yourself be taken by surprise. Try hard, but enjoy it. Be curious. Ask yourself, what would happen if I just relaxed and accepted I know nothing at all about how to do this and that no amount of thinking about it or about anything else is going to help? So I let go of who I think I am and just sit. Please throw yourself in wholeheartedly and enjoy this session. Thank you for your attention.